The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com. The shark baby has such teeth there. And it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie, baby. And it keeps it out of sight. You know when that shark bites. So welcome to Macklin's Take, everybody. The first one of 2020. Let's all hope that it's, uh, that it's a good year. Hope everybody had a good Christmas and New Year and all of that. And today we're going to kick off in style by attacking a subject that we haven't actually got into just yet. Uh, and I can't really think why, because we're 39, 40 episodes in. But the subject today is the written press, because we've spoken about broadcast quite a lot. But this is something that we haven't really talked about up until this point. And of course... Print media has always been the original form of the media, so today we've got the ideal man for the job. We've got a man who is a top boxing writer, uh, allied to that, he's a published author, he's a martial arts expert, he's a classical scholar. All of these things are true, Macklin, you're looking at me with with scepticism, but it's John Denon. John, how are you? I'm very good. Uh, Yeah, I just wasn't ready for that intro. Um, Yeah, I guess I'm here to represent the old media. From that point of view, Boxing News has been going for over a hundred years, and I think one of the, the strong points of it has always been that in in these times now, which are no more kind of turbulent than they've ever been, but I think there are more allegiances, more alliances, more kind of factions probably between different media networks and different promoters than, than there have ever been you all manage to maintain your impartiality. And, and it's an increasingly difficult thing to do. It's true. I think it's important to have, you know, sort of independent media outlets. I know a lot of, you know, a lot of broadcast media do a great job, but they will have fights in particular they cover. They'll have certain affiliations. Uh, at Boxing News, we're completely independent. We, we are impartial. Uh, and I think there's a place for that voice in boxing. You know, so when we say... A good fight's a good fight. We mean it. Uh, when we do our rankings, we we think they're fair. You're never going to please everyone, but I think if you're annoying everyone on all sides, hopefully you're doing something right. I think that's I think that's kind of the perfect way of, of putting it. Is that if you're getting it off everyone, criticism off everyone, then then you must be doing it right because that's one thing I've noticed is that it is perfectly possible to get criticised by both sides of a fight for being biased against a particular fighter and it does make you laugh but I was listening to a podcast with Tris Dixon the other day his, one of his boxing life stories which are terrific with, with Russell Peltz an old, old school promoter and he was talking about how back in the day the written press this, this started about 100 years ago would take envelopes full of cash from, um, from promoters to give them, to give them a, good, a good write up and it's something in boxing that has been happening for a long time that, that just doesn't really happen in any other in any other sport. I mean, there's nothing quite like this sport, is there? It's just it's it's crazy from pretty much all angles. Yeah, no one is now giving boxing writers envelopes of cash. At least it's in my experience. But I've been at, I've been at boxing news for ten years now, so and no envelopes, no envelopes of cash. I'm it's I'm bad glad that it's bad that amount, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> you look uncorruptible, John, <laughs> and I mean that in a good way. I have to say, I've just got to add, actually, what you, when you said there about the impartiality and, and, and Pete, as Andy was speaking, I just thought to myself, and, I, and this is just one example, it makes me laugh. Um, we did, there was a show, you know, not long ago, a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, whatever, in Newcastle between Ted Cheeseman and Scott Fitzgerald. Great fight. We had it a draw. Well, I, I was, on my card, I had it a draw, six rounds to six. Thought Cheeseman boxed really well early doors, shocked Fitzgerald with his tactics. 
used his legs like he'd never used before. Obviously, died to death a little bit, and Fitzgerald finished strong. It was it was a you know a fight of two halves ish yeah. with maybe Fitzgerald nicking a couple of the first six and, and Cheeseman getting a couple of hanging on and getting a couple of the the last six. But on my card, I've got it six six. So you know, I haven't gone either way yet. Fitzgerald gets a close decision, and I, you know, afterwards you you know you look on Twitter and that after, and I can see pe- the amount of people giving directing loads of shit at me. Ah, buy a Sky Matchroom, Sims, blah blah. You know how biased I am because I didn't have Fitzgerald winning overwhelmingly. You know, I had it a draw, and then yet yeah, I've got other people, ten other people, giving me loads of shit because I didn't have Cheeseman winning it do you know what I mean and I go back into the hotel then and I'm speaking to um, you know Mark you know Mark Salsa who, who, who's a friend of mine I get on very well with Mark and there's uh, Tony Sims and you know I'm talking to Mark I said, hey, I said I had it a draw and he was you know I could see he was like nah he, yeah. he won that fight and I'm like no fair enough I said look I'm just scoring it round by round 10 point more system as you see it as, as it I happens and I had it six rounds. At the end, I had it up and it had it 114, 114. I said, look, I said, if you were going to tell me you felt Cheeseman won, I wouldn't argue. But if someone comes in here now and tells me they thought Fitzgerald won it, I wouldn't argue. Like I said, it's, I had it a draw. You go well, round either way, 115, 113 either way. I could see how that could... You could get to that. It was a close fight. It was a great fight, a fight of two halves a bit. Um, and, you know, not that... And Mark knows I'm not against them but he just thought oh no I thought you know, they definitely thought they won that fight they felt they felt hard done by you know they felt thought that Fitzgerald getting that fight was a bad decision and they didn't agree and me saying I had it a draw they didn't think that was accurate either. they thought they definitely won that fight so did Fitzgerald but what I'm saying and I you know I've probably gone around the regions a bit to make the <laughs> point but we had it a draw you can't and you're, 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 you're being yeah. called uh biased and a cheat and blah blah all this yeah. on both sides well I can't be fucking biased to, to both of you no no I, <laughs> you know I, 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 I was doing, I was doing the, the car for Sky that night and I had it a draw as well and um, I remember this because uh, it's just the, it's just the best one I've had um, I don't get much I don't get much stick but um, one person after that and this is it just is memorable called me a big floppy matchroom cock would you believe that? I mean, it's quite funny, that isn't it? I did quite like that. But, but John, um, that, that fight, yeah, that fight, yeah, yeah, yeah. After that one, um, so do you find it? I mean, do you get much comeback at boxing news from from fighters, from trainers, from from family members, from 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 promoters? Does anyone ever really say anything about? Yeah. All, all the time. You like, see, that's interesting because we don't really. I mean, we we get it on Twitter a bit, but no one ever kind of, no one's ever really walked up to me and, and wanted to discuss it we get you know fighters promoters uh, trainers phoning in confronting you all this all this kind of stuff like uh, people very rarely say that was a great article I really appreciated what you said there but if they disagree on something not in like a you know not in a not in like a really bad way in the you know not like anyone's like threatened me or anything but more you know people passionately passionately make their point if they disagree with you uh, and do get pretty agitated about it sometimes and equally you know readers can write in or phone up with really strongly held views so it's uh, it's a bit it's a it gets you down a bit when you're getting it in the neck from all sides you, like you can have an article where you've watched the fight scored it round by round as you saw it so you've got to stick with that then you spend you know days slaving over the piece that's going to be published in the magazine that you know a few days later so you've not only got your own experience of watching the fight you speak to different people involved you've got all these different points of view in your piece so you can work really hard on it and then if someone disagrees with your score or you know not putting in a a good picture of them or something then you just get yelled at do you know the bit that makes me laugh a, a little bit as well and, and I'm sure you'll agree with this John and Andy I know that for a fact that most of the people giving you loads of shit about getting it about being biased or whatever haven't even sat down and scored that fight they've just decided at the end of the fight who they think won yeah 
But unfortunately, that's not how it works. Do you know what I yeah. mean? So let's say someone finishes really strong, or, or let's say he wins his round particularly well, so has great highlight reel, probably does belong to him. But the other guy was nicking the earlier rounds, but he was winning them on your, on your, on your card or my card or whoever's card. You, you have to, it's a 10, it's a 10 9. Unless there's an up down, it's 10 8. It's a 10 9, 10 point more system, and that's how you score the fight. So it doesn't matter if you battered him in the, in the last three rounds and he nicked the first nine, he still beat you nine rounds to three, and that's how the scorecard goes. And I just think that the amount of people that are watching the fight as a fan, not as a judge, not scoring it, as most of the times. I watch the fight unless some, you know if it's one a big fight I'm thinking it's going to be close then I'll keep a score but you a lot, a lot of the time I don't keep a score if I'm just watching it you know another fight I'll just watch the fight and you know just to, to sit back then and kind of vilify and go mad about how someone scored it unless you sat there and scored it yourself no, that's, that, like that, that's a good point, and that that happens all the time, and and that's why I think it's it's never you never want to get too too worried about what what people have to say about about your card if you if you kept it honestly and you know how you got there, um, then I think that's all you can really do. It, it's interesting to hear you talk about how, and this I think is one of the main differences between what we do and what you do. Obviously, there's preparation that goes into what we do, but then you do it, and it's in the moment, and then it's over. Uh, and you move on to the next thing. Whereas if you're writing, you have a longer time to totally obsess about it. Um, unless your deadline's like right after the end of the fight, like, a, like I used to see people doing at football, they'd be writing a, what they call a runner, and they kind of write it as they went along, and then put the front and then the end on it when they knew what the result was. It's quite, a, quite an interesting thing to see people do. But you just have that little bit more time for it to be that bit more considered... And therefore, yeah, I can understand what you're saying there. When somebody just kind of writes that off in one fell swoop, it'd be, it'd be quite frustrating. Just take us behind the scenes of Boxing News a little bit. So just tell us about, about that place. How many of you are there? What do you all, what are your different beats? What do you all do? Uh, well, so there, um, there, there are only five of us, including, uh, including the designer Nick Bond. There's the editor Matt Christie. There's myself. Paul Wheeler and Elliot Wurzel. So we sort of have to cover cover everything. So we have a print magazine comes out every Thursday, and you know, in this case, uh, we've just had the Christmas double issue, which is twice as big as everything we normally do. Plus, we've got you know a website that's updated daily. So there's stuff going up there all the time. That's we've just brought in a paywall, so you can get everything from the magazine on the on the website as well. So it's a lot. It's a lot of work because it's not just you're not just sitting there unspooling whatever happens to be on your mind at the time. You're doing research, you're checking facts, you're speaking to different people for different articles. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. But I hope that's what makes it good, and I hope that's why our readers buy it and subscribe to it because um, it's not just instant reaction. Though there is some element of that. You're getting deeply considered hopefully well written pieces that speak to a variety of sources so hopefully it's this sort of in-depth satisfying reads that you'd want to you know take your time over put your feet up with a beer or a cup of tea and actually know what boxing news has to say about the big fights that have happened or are coming up i mean just listening to you speak there there's no doubt there's a lot of work that goes in like you say not just not just the writing the article but getting the information the research interviews piecing it together maybe checking you know that, that you've got your facts right and all that sort of thing but I think I mean for me there's so many people that just write um, articles and you know whether it's in, in any this is just in boxing you, in this, you know look, the Times is up there you know the Times has got a certain reputation the BBC we mentioned before we were talking uh, uh, before we, we started doing this you know I've got a certain you know a standard they've got a have their facts right they've got to get the two sides of the story it's balanced this type of thing so I know growing up the boxing news you know there, there wasn't so many obviously magazines and there wasn't so many there wasn't all the social media and every Tom, Dick and Harry is a, is a journalist there was you know the boxing news was the you know the, the ring magazine was the bible of boxing in America but in, in, in the UK it was the the, the boxing news yeah. so, boxing news is older than the ring yeah you better know, so, written as well so I think there's, if I say so myself so I think facts. 
So I think it's, um, I suppose there's an obligation and, a, and a, a duty by the writers of the Boxing News to keep, you know, to keep a standard. You know, I remember Mike Costello saying, and, and again, he's the BBC, but it's the same type of thing, I'm, I'm, I'm the point I'm making. Someone, I think someone had died and it was on Twitter. And I'd just seen loads of people saying, I can't even remember who it was, but it was R.I.P. whoever. So I've just gone, yeah, R.I.P. I think it might have been Emmanuel Stewart. And uh, Mike called me and said, have you, you know, is this, how, how have you heard this? Because I've seen other people, I've seen tweets from his family saying, you know, he's not dead, he's not well, blah, blah, we're looking after him. He said, you know, I'm, I'm with the BBC, I can't get this wrong. And then he started explaining to me where, some people are just like, be first. You've got to be first instead of, no, like, you've got to be right, you've got to be accurate, you've got to be true. You know, so he, I, I didn't even understand probably that uh, positioning on it. But but I've, since then, I've you know, you watch the way media goes and everything. And you, you, it, it kind of is that way. Here and I just be first, just be first, just right, just right. It's like, and it's right there. If you're, if you're uh, representing a, a, a newspaper or a magazine or whoever, or even yourself, if you're not, like, if you're not getting this sort of confirmed and, and double-checking it and making sure it's a fact, where, 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 did your, where did your reliability go? Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! This is so crazy! In the end? Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and it's... It's actually got like over recent years. It's got like that more and more. As in, there's so much stuff out there. There's so many videos on YouTube. That's not so, accurate. Well, I'm not. You know, some sometimes not. A lot, a lot of the time it is. But what I mean is, you know, for because there's more and more coming out all the time. That there's all fake this, news. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. Go on. What I mean is more, I think, what I'm thinking more that once upon a time in the glory days of boxing news, you know, people would actually need the magazine to find out what happened, who beat who, what the results were. Now you're one click away from knowing, um, you know, the weekend's results and that kind of thing. So, so I think the place for boxing news is more to have accurate, well written, considered pieces. And I think there is a place for, for, slightly slower journalism that is better to read than you know if you're working for a website or a newswire you've just got to crank out all the time so you might well be accurate but maybe the quality of the writing wouldn't be as good as if you've got some hours to spend on that piece so I think you know there's a place for breaking news but I happen to think it's much more important to be right than first but there's also a place for uh good quality journalism that you know you're going to get something out of reading as well yeah I suppose, yeah I, I get that i mean even though it's weekly so chances are by the time you're reading it you, you it, it, it's it's late it's you, you, you it's already happened maybe five days ago or whatever and you know you've probably read a, if, you're, if you're a boxing fan you've probably read several articles about a fight if you didn't get to see it online but yeah i, th- I agree with you saying if you're but if you're if you know a a certain writer or a certain magazine holds a certain standard of reporting on it, then even though it's a week later, I would still think, I would still like to read what that person, what that, you know, like whoever, might be, might be, might be a Teddy Atlas or it might be, or it might just be a boxing writer. And I know that person gives a balanced, fair, uh, in-depth, knowledgeable account. Then I would I, certainly, speaking for my own self, I would read that. Well, that, that's exactly why I do read it because I'll, I'll watch a fight or I'll catch up with it afterwards and I'll make up my own mind what I think about it I'm not going to read endless opinion pieces on it but there are some that I will read and I'll always read boxing news uh, and there are selected other places that I will go to is it frustrating 
the the kind of digital boom has been interesting for broadcast and for and for print because there's so much more stuff out there now. With 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 broadcast, it it's just more straightforward in that if you get comment from someone immediately about something, then what they say is what they say. You're not really giving an opinion. You're just putting something out there so Coogan and all the other guys will get instant reaction from whoever it is. They'll put it up online. And it just really speaks for itself. But in your world, like you say, there are people who just want to be really quick. They're not even really that bothered whether they're right. They're not really that bothered whether the, the standard of writing is to, is to any kind of standard, really. I mean, do you sometimes just take a look around you and just think, what, what, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even in the time I've been at Boxing News, things have changed so much. But, you know, I think there's a place for different forms of media like a youtube video where it's a boxer who's you know having a laugh speaking about random stuff is all you know is you know there's a place for that and it's fun to watch uh i think there does need to be for the type of journalism i do there does need to be context so if someone says something or makes a big claim you've sort of got to check it maybe there's an alternative point of view that kind of needs to be included to balance it out and to tackle certain stories or certain issues, really a, a big written piece is the best way of doing that. But I think there are all sorts of different media, whether it's YouTube, whether it's podcasts, um, TV broadcasts. So, you know, there's, you know, there might be too many of certain types of things and maybe not as many, there are not as many boxing writers around as there used to be. And I think that's a shame. Um, but hopefully things will, the pendulum will swing back a little bit. Yeah, so... So, so by, yeah, so a, a lot of the kind of right, it's out now, YouTube, it's heat at the moment, whatever, it's, it's a point of view. I, I'm not saying there's sense, I'm not saying that's sensationalism, but like, you know, we were talking before, there's some things, it's sensationalism, just get it out there, it's a story. Well, it's a version of a story. Boxing News kind of has, because of its history, uh, has a responsibility and, and probably in, in making sure they live up to that responsibility. It, it can't be first anyway because you have to check and double check and, uh, like you say, put context, get the other side of the story, and then you put in a balanced, fair, accurate, or as accurate as you can possibly be expected to find out. That, you know, put that across. Do you think? And I think that's why Boxing News, you know, the Ring Magazine, these, there's certain, you know, we talked about the, the, the Times newspaper just because I've seen it over there, but, you know, there's certain. But, but the, the Ring magazine is an interesting one to mention because it, in many ways you are you are kind of the last man standing boxing news because Ring magazine was bought by Golden Boy essentially, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and Golden Boy is a, a promoter and they have rivals. And no matter how good a job, I, I don't read it anymore for basically for that reason. And it's not a diss on the people who write for it, but no matter how good a job they do, they it's difficult for them to be able to to claim complete impartiality as a publication in exactly the same way it's difficult for Sky to be able to claim complete impartiality although that's what we strive for um, in the boxing world because we broadcast matchroom shows and yeah so I think I think maybe the fine men of boxing news you're kind of just standing on the hill <laughs> rallying <laughs> under the flag yeah so everyone buy boxing news you know, media organisation is, is still a business. It has to be sustainable. So you can completely understand why it's, you know, why if you're owned by someone, you've got to, uh, well, I can't really speak for the internal workings of the Ring magazine, but in Boxing News's case, our independence is important. And we really, so we're dependent on our read, readers. We're depending on, depending on them to read the magazine, to buy it, to subscribe online. Now we've got a paywall. We can get it, get it all there. Um, so, and it, and it, it is hard. Like you can, we were talking about the importance of getting your hot take done quickly and getting it out there first because so many uh, online platforms, you're just kind of dependent on programmatic advertising, which means you're completely dependent on people reading it for free. So you need a massive audience for advertising off that to be sustainable. So it is, you know, it's really hard. And I think every media organisation finds that, whether it's a magazine or a newspaper, like times are pretty tough out there. And it'd be a great shame if, you know, these kind of organisations couldn't keep going. And I suppose it's then, you know, generally people do things because it's their work or their business to make money. 
you know, and you enjoy what you're doing, but eventually, if it's successful or not, is whether it makes money or not, and if it's sustainable because it makes money and it pays wages, and you you can, you know, it keeps going that way. So, if it, but then where? I suppose there's that line where, yeah, we can make money doing this, but then if we do that, we're like we're losing our, you know, um, soul. Well, your, your yeah, identity, yeah, like yeah, what your yeah, brand, or, or, what your business yeah, or, is all about. Or, or as Andy mentioned, you know, he mentioned the Ring magazine that being bought by Golden Boy, and no matter how much they try and be impartial, they're owned by Golden Boy, you know, and to, to you know they pay their wages, so it's it's, it's a difficult. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. What is in it? It is, it is. And just at this point, I, I I need to just kind of paint a bit more of a picture for you. You might have heard a change in the background noise and about 30 or so seconds ago, you, you what you heard there from John Denon was a world-class piece of work because he was picking up halfway through a previous answer because whilst we were downstairs recording uh, at the Crown Park Plaza, just on the south side of Westminster Bridge, shame on you, um, we were interrupted and we were told to stop filming. We filmed these things for little promos. We were in a public area, but we've done this in all sorts of hotels all over the place, in different locations in the world, actually. So we were rather officiously told to, to stop filming. But we got a good 10 minutes of the handsome Denon, so that's fine. Uh, and then a few minutes after that, Martin came over and told us that we had to stop recording because we're in a public place. Uh, and for us to be able to continue recording, you'd have to put up loads of disclaimers all over the place. And likened it to filming a movie. He told us, when you film a movie on the street... Don't know how extensive his experience of Hollywood is, honestly, but that's what he said. You would have to put up lots of disclaimers. Um, so it would appear that Macklin's take is basically on the same level uh, as a Hollywood blockbusting movie, uh, and for that reason, we've moved up to, to Macklin's room. And but you never would have known any of this, apart from hearing the background noise. But I did say, Martin, we're not making a movie, mate. You did, you, you know, did. You did. And, I, and, I, and I, I didn't say this, but a few years ago, mine would have got a slap. <laughs> I was I was braced and ready for it all to go off. <laughs> and, I'm a much it, calmer man these days. <laughs> anyway, anyway, it's only the background noise that would have alerted you to that. Uh, but I thought I'd fill you in anyway because John any, John's been interrupting midflow twice now. You won't have you won't have picked it up the first time because we'd have just stitched it together. But I thought he deserved a big, big props for that because. Um, <laughs> He is a written press man, but he can diversify. He can jump over <laughs> to the other side, the other side of the fence. So we've had a good chat about the, the kinds of the advancements in the media over the last few years and, and the difficulties um, therein. How, how do you find it? You know, the, the bones of our business though is dealing with fighters, dealing with promoters, managers, etc. How do you find it when you're when you're looking for for access? Has, has that changed at all in, in the time that you've been doing it? Because one of the beauties of boxing, really, when I compare it to other sports I've covered, is that it is it. The access you get is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's probably a bit more chaotic now because you've got lots of um, sort of websites and YouTube channels that I haven't necessarily heard of before, like at press events and that kind of thing. But it is great, you know, and I've spoken about the pressures of you know working for boxing news or the pressures of getting in you know getting complaints from people but i haven't mentioned how good the job is you know being able to spend your time talking to fighters and trainers meeting interesting people who really know what they're talking about is brilliant it is the dream job i get to you know it's what i've always wanted to do i get to sit around watching fights i get to speak to all the fighters lots of the people involved um so it is it is it is fantastic are there any interviews in particular that kind of stick out of, of days that turned into days that you never really expected? You know, you, you arranged to go and meet somebody at a gym and they just turned out to be a lot different to how you thought they were going to be or, or the scenario involved turned out to be a lot different to how you thought it was going to be? So much strange stuff happens that you never expect. I remember, you know, I never thought I'd end up being driven the wrong way down a one-way street by Matthew Macklin in Manchester when I'd gone to interview Crawler. But... <laughs> But um, 
And I remember my first big interview for Boxing News with like, you know, a top name was like Vladimir Klitschko and, you know, sat down with him for like a long time and I failed to record the interview. Which oh, is just wow, like my worst is. nightmare. I'd taken extensive notes during it so I could like piece together the article. Um but yeah, there's so did, many Did you have to admit that? To to, to, to to boxing news to I'm only else. admitting it now I ten years say, later just, that, yeah. that, that's why I asked this <laughs> no, is a, no one this, needs to know God that's a terrible moment though I remember that kind of thing happened to me early on as well where you think you've hit play and you may be playing recording you've held it down for a bit too long so it pauses that happened to me a couple of times and just a feeling of panic when you <laughs> just <laughs> when, when horror you, you realise that you've done it it's just absolutely Absolutely terrible. And, and it's like the most fundamental part of your job, like at least record the there's, interview. There's no, there's no explaining it. Oh, imagine if you're, you know, for, for even particularly from for, from my side, broadcast, like, it's like, how did you manage not to record what you were doing? It's like, there's no explanation for it that will in any way pass muster. Um, you've done a lot of travelling as well, because people who, who read Boxing News will know that you are the man who covers the amateur scene uh, in the UK, but also abroad. And that... That is a fascinating world of its of its own. I've been on it with you for for three, four, five years, uh, and it takes you to some pretty extraordinary places. So that I think it's interesting speaking to fighters because they say, "Oh, pro boxing is great. Love my pro career," but the amateurs was kind of those were really my favourite days. Is it kind of the same for you? You love covering pro boxing, but the amateur boxing is it's just it's just something else, isn't it? Yeah, like pro boxing, like pro big events and spectacular things. There's so much to like about pro boxing, but there's a lot to not like of the things that go on with it, whether it's decisions, whether it's uh, you spend six hours <laughs> sitting through an undercard that often isn't great to get to the main event. Whereas amateur boxing has all the things you really like. You know, it's quick, it's fast. The boxers really want to win. They're hard, they're really high level guys. I mean, you have the top boys from GB boxing the Russians, the Uzbeks, the Kazakhs. That's like quality, and it you know it means so much to those boxers involved. They're not just do it. They're not well in pro, not all pros are just doing it for the money. They might be doing it for the money and the glory, the fame, the success, whatever. But in in amateur boxing, it's not you're not getting no, paid for it. Suppose, you do it because you love it. Yeah, and, and I suppose the, what you're trying to say is like you get you get journeymen in pro boxing. You get fights that they're not really fifty fifty fights. There's guys, there's the prospect, there's the, the you know the, here is saying the A side and the B side with the blue corner and the red corner. There's the house fighter, the guy who the promoter is bringing through, and he's putting a fight that you know he's an overwhelming favourite to win. And, and you know that gets less and less and less as they get into titles, and it becomes more fifty fifty then, but. <laughs> Basically, when you're at an international tournament, you're getting top quality lads going in, giving it everything they've got. To win. you know what I mean? They're not being manoeuvred or brought through. This is a every fight's technically a fifty-fifty fight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the one of the other best things about it is, you know, in Olympic boxing and amateur boxing, that's when boxers can really turn their lives around. They can really go from no one's ever heard of them, from maybe not coming from the greatest place in the country to if you get a big medal, if you get an Olympic medal, that boxer's life is going to change and that's a wonderful thing to see. And it comes with the downside is if someone you know is unlucky or doesn't qualify for the Olympics, that is like devastating to see, especially for a young person. Um, but yeah, so if you're getting fed up with boxing or pro boxing just go to like a local club show go watch the olympic qualifier coming up in london it will kind of restore your faith in the sport it it is so interesting to follow people through because you you did it for the london cycle i i I didn't but for the rio cycle i did and then when i watched all those all those lads come through and turn pro you already know them and you already know their story and you've already seen some of the tough times they've they've encountered and like you say it just it just it's not a difficult sport to feel like you're close to anyway boxing but particularly that is like because of the access you can you can just feel like you're on that journey with them and and there's something about that certainly and the destinations you go to in amateur boxing too it's like Kazakhstan Uzbekistan Armenia Venezuela China I've been to you've been to more than that and these are places that you wouldn't probably go to otherwise uh, and 
that that's just another another element to it. All of a sudden, you find yourself in a kind of sports hall in in, in Yerevan where there's this unbelievable standard of boxing going on, um, and there's there's like about seventeen of you watching it. It's a strange old circuit in a way. Yeah, yeah, but absolutely fascinating. I mean, where else would you go, get to spend two weeks in Kazakhstan? Why else would you spend two weeks in Kazakhstan? <laughs> Even if they do have an aquarium, which is the furthest from the sea in the world. Uh, myself and John went to the Women's World Championships in 2016. And off the back of my hotel, there was this aquarium. And, and, and that was the boast, was that it was the aquarium furthest from the sea in the entire world. So we we checked it out. And, I mean, it became apparent pretty 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 quickly why, why there wasn't a lot of competition of having aquariums really far from the sea. Because it just wasn't, I don't know. I felt a bit bad for the two sort of mournful sharks that were floating around in there. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. But it, it is, it's, it's so interesting to go to those those kinds of places. I mean, it's been a difficult last few years, though, for, for IEBA. Uh, and this is something you follow really, really closely. And you've been the man to follow for this, for, for all sorts of, of developments. And after Rio uh, and the spotlight that was on the, the judges after after Michael Michael Conlon's reaction to his decision against Vladimir Nikitin and that wasn't the only one in that Olympics but the, the strange thing was that actually overall in Rio the judging was pretty good and there were two or three isolated incidents where there was a really bad decision and it needed an overhaul and the governing body just basically refused to do it. Like we were talking about it over the last two, three years, and every time they had an opportunity to get their to get their shit together, for want of a better phrase, they just didn't do it. And in the end, it's been taken off them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Rio was pretty bad because you know there there were bad decisions in like high key, profile in key bouts, and normally you'd hope you can sort of you know in, in a tournament that's you know, in the heart of Russia that no one's really watching, yeah, you're going to get some bad decisions and people can sort of live with that. But at the Olympics, you'd think that's got to be the highest highest of standards. I think it showed the audacity of the powers that be, that they thought they were untouchable, that they could do that and get away with it. And I actually think fair play to Michael Conlon for giving it, you know, the fingers and the outburst, which was just pure raw emotion. We'd be robbed of his dream. You know, he was probably one of the favourites going into that. He was world champion, European gold medalist. You know what I mean? He he really fancied to win the gold medal. He's clearly won a fight and he's been robbed. Do you know what I mean? And, and yeah, I, yeah, I mean, generally amateur fighters take it very stoically, don't they? There was, there was another horrific decision in the heavyweight final between uh, Vasily Levitt and Evgeny Tyshchenko. And, and I thought Joe Joyce got a really bad one against Tony Yoka. Some people disagree with me on that. They didn't think it was too bad. I thought it was terrible. I, th- I thought it was terrible. Uh, uh, and listen, I got a terrible one myself in the World <laughs> Junior Championships in 2000 in Budapest, the boxing the Hungarian uh, in the quarterfinals. And I come back up to the first round. Calvin Travis was in my corner. And he's like, going, man, he goes, you're too down. You know, they're fucking you. They're fucking you. You know, I won the first round, clearly. So I go out there, really put my uh, foot on the gas in the second round, come back, and I'm 10 down. So I'm like, are they... Are they pushing his button instead of mine? You know, they're getting red and blue wrong. So Calvin's not even giving me any instructions at this case. He's just shouting out of the ring, I think, to the team manager, Peter Hayes, to kind of see what's going on. And anyway, third round, I'm really stepping on the gas now. And halfway through the round, but the, the different bell rings stopped, outclassed, 15-point rule. I literally punched this guy pillar to post. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I was so disgusted. I was heartbroken as well because... You know, I had really good momentum going into that, that tournament. I'd won a you know, gold medal in Hungary a month before. I'd won a silver medal in Sardinia and I'd avenged that loss in, in the other tournament in Hungary. Like I was bouncing into this tournament thinking I, I could win the gold medal here. Do you know what I mean? I fancied it. and Because I, I got down from 71 kilos to 67. I had a really good first uh, win against a, good, a decent Italian called Andre Di Lucia. And then next year I boxed this Hungarian. And like I say, the more... The harder I was trying, the more I was putting into it, the, the, the more the scores were going against me. I couldn't believe it. And I, I really did think they must be hitting his button instead of mine. But I, I mean, I, but the, I mean, you know, there was no uproar. What was the point? I just I got out of the ring. I was disgusted. I was fuming. But I didn't. I didn't kick off because at that point it was like there was never. We'd never seen any 
real. Never seen anything done. It was just pointless. So I just. But that's that 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 was the point that John was making as well, and 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 it's that's why it had to happen, didn't it? That's why almost things had to get worse before they could get better, and we had to have that kind of furore around Rio, and and thankfully it stayed in the Olympics because. I think you were in Turkey to see Callum Smith get absolutely stitched up before yeah. London. That was his dream to qualify for London. Didn't happen. I, I've seen some really bad ones in, in qualifiers. I remember a girl from Chinese Taipei um, in the Asian qualifier for, for Rio getting... I could not believe my eyes. She won every second of every round and she didn't get it. Four years, gone. Uh, but, you know, who's going to care about that? Because nobody knows, even in the Olympic qualifier. In boxing, everybody had a lot of sympathy for Callum and anybody that it happens to. But you can just push that aside and forget yeah. about it. But yeah, after Smith, Rio, that's right, a, yeah. after Rio, you, yeah. you can't you can't do that. How how close were they? Do you think to, to losing Olympic status? I mean, yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. Very, very close. Because, I mean, it's a problem that amateur boxing has had for a, for many yeah, years. Jones, back in 1998. I mean, they changed it then to the the computer scoring thing, you know, because they're obviously thinking, how well, this is corruption, how do we get away from it? So they went into the computer scoring. But you just don't press, the, if you don't want someone to win, you just don't press their button. Do you know, or you press, or you, or, you know, or you press it late, you know, there's yeah. way around it. Isn't it's it? not an infallible, you, yeah. Because you're still getting the bad decisions, then they tried the four twos, and I actually prefer that it's gone back to the three threes and the manual scorings, because at least you can hold someone accountable, you yeah. know, like, you know, I think it's better, but the, um, you know the the, the the thing with the uh, I, I, I was going to go off key about head guards, but now go on. Go on. <laughs> you know, come we'll, on. I'll be, I'll be, we'll get back to that. I'm very good at going up on a tangent. <laughs> but I think I think the fact that the IOC has actually taken the Olympic boxing away from the international federation shows exactly on just how thin ice boxing was on. That I'm not. I don't think that's ever happened before for any other Olympic sport, especially so close to the Olympic Games. That shows how serious it was. You know, there were real concerns for the IOC about Aiba's, you know, officiating, the refereeing, and the judging. Aiba's own finances and governments, like real, real serious problems. The fact that um, it's gone as far as them having to take the boxing off Aiba, you know, is a big move. Hopefully, we'll see this new task force do a good job with the qualifying events in 2020 and the Olympic boxing itself. But Aiba needs to get its house in order because, you know, the the future is still an open question. IOC don't want to hold on to boxing forever. They just want for, a governing body. Olympics. Yeah, but they, they'll want a governing body by the, the 2024 Olympics. So is Aiba going to be fit for purpose for do, to do that? And if they're not, then what happens? So there are uh, longer-term worries. But on the bright side, we've got, I think, slightly more rational qualification process coming up. You know, things should be aren't looking as bleak as they were halfway through 2019 when I was thinking like Aiba were just not jumping through the hoops they really needed to jump through absolutely incredible the lack of urgency or the lack of inclination they had to to basically do anything that they were being asked to do the arrogance of it was absolutely mind-boggling and and not everybody in professional boxing follows amateur boxing they'll pick up fighters they'll emerge in their consciousness when they turn over after the Olympics and I, I was saying to people I was saying to people there's this massive iceberg heading our way for, for all of boxing because if Olympic boxing disappears, it will change the sport beyond recognition because people won't stay amateur as long. They'll turn pro a lot younger. They won't be as good. Uh, and it's going to make an enormous, enormous difference to everything. But at the moment, you know, it's got to, got to kind of stay of execution. It, 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 
going to those tournaments, and you've been doing it longer than me by the time I started, it became apparent that what happens is uh, when IEBA are running it, the ones I've been to have been for the big have been hosted by the big powerhouses, Kazakhstan, um, Uzbekistan mainly, the, the ones I've been to. And they're like mini Olympic Games. You, you, you agree to host one, you foot the bill. And they're not going to be cheap. But the quid pro quo is, you're going to do well. You're going to do well. If there's a close decision and you're paying for it and you're in Kazakhstan, you're going to get it. That, that, that's how it works. But it is, it's hard to kind of prove corruption because home advantage is a thing. When you've got the crowd behind you, cheering you on, that's going to help. Um, but there's a reason why sort of... Western countries like Britain or France or America or or you know sort of Western European countries haven't got a major tournament for a long, long time because the big money is coming from places like Kazakhstan and Russia, what, and then they're getting the what, big events. What was that tournament where well, you'll you'll know this better than me? I've just got this thing in my head. There was something with Azerbaijan and like six million pound or dollars or. Is that the European Games? Uh, the, there has been a European Games, Azerbaijan. There was a World Championships in Azerbaijan in 2011, and Newsnight did this big story just before it, saying that they've been promised uh, X number of gold medals, yeah, that and they put be. all this money in. But then Aiba's defence was, well, Azerbaijan didn't win all these gold medals. Um, so, but these are the kind of issues. So, what's who's right and who's wrong? These are the kind of issues that are floating around the sport. And, and that's the thing is is also if if you've got a tournament hosted by a strong country anyway, Kazakhstan doing well in Kazakhstan, no one's going to be surprised by that because because they're very good. Or Uzbekistan doing well in Uzbekistan, but as you say, it's impossible to prove. But the women's world championships, a recent one, was in India. Uh, and India had their best medal haul since the previous Women's World Championships that was hosted in India. These things are just little clues, aren't they? I went to the final Olympic qualifier in Venezuela before Rio for, for WSB and APB. All of the Venezuelan fighters who entered got through. Now, they're decent, but, you know, they're hiding in plain sight. But then when it's done in full glare of everyone at the Olympics, then that's when the kind of the lid blew off it and... As you say, though, the qualifying system for, for, for Tokyo is good. Continental qualifiers, we got them at the copper box in March. And then if you don't make it through that, then there's one final crack in Paris, I think. And, and that's it. So I, I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Like, it's not like, you know, they're, they're, in a tournament that has hundreds of bouts, you're going to get some bad decisions. Of course. The important thing is that they kind of, Good faith, bad decisions. You know, you don't you don't want your judges to be incompetent, but you definitely would rather incompetence than corruption. corruption. Yeah, and I think you know it's it's a problem that for far too long amateur boxing hasn't got to grips with, um, and hopefully the sort of tide is turning a bit. But things were looking pretty bad earlier in 2019 I wasn't particularly optimistic because the good things about amateur boxing are so good but there's just nothing worse than you know like you were describing that feeling of you know you're getting stitched up and what can you do that's what Callum Smith had against Azerbaijan like how did you feel say losing that bout when you were a young amateur like compared to the Felix Sturm fight where you're unlucky as a as a sort of hardened pro um That's I don't a really know. good question. Yeah, that is a. I don't. Know. I remember. I mean, it's bringing up bad memories. No, no, it's, it's an interesting question, quite uh, thought provoking. Because I'm, I'm trying to. I mean, I, I think the one in the World Juniors was more heartbreaking. Like I remember, you know, I was 18 years old. I wasn't in the habit of crying as an 18 year old, and I didn't cry in the ring, or, and I didn't cry initially after. But I remember when I was back in the uh, changing rooms. And then all the lads were there, you know, Craig Lyon, Mark Moran, Terry Fletcher, all my teammates, Calvin, they're all like going, oh, Macklin, that was the worst. You know, all kind of like gutted for you. And then it, then it kind of hit me and I, I remember just kind of putting my face in the towel because I was feeling a bit, and I didn't want to cry in front of everyone. Do you know what I mean? But um, but I never I never felt like crying at any point in the Sturm fight after the Sturm loss. Uh, I was a bit angry. I was, out, I was outraged and angry in the ring. Uh, but to be honest with you, by the time, uh, by the time I was in the, the changing rooms after, I mean, it, Sturm's guy from Ufa Sports who run who ran his promotional company, I said to him, and we dealt with him all week. I said, Carson, I said I won that fight clearly. 
that, that, that is disgusting. I'm not gonna, I can't argue with you. You know, Brian Peters said to me, don't worry about it. He says, everyone's seen it. And, and I could see that it was universally accepted that this was a terrible decision. I knew it had been on American television. Everyone was like, so I just felt, you know, like you say, I'm, I'm over in Budapest. I've got to ring, I've got to go to the payphone, ring uh, my family and say, how'd you get out? Nah, I, I got robbed. And they're probably going to think, oh yeah. You know, or you, you know, you know, your family are going to believe you. But when I come home and I tell people, oh yeah, I boxed this, I got this uh, Hungarian, but I got robbed. I won it. I was, I was bashing him, but I got robbed. They're just going to think, fuck off. Yeah, and that, Do you know what I mean. That's what everyone says. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's the big difference, isn't it? Because these things happen kind of like out of sight, out of mind. I remember getting told an absolutely extraordinary story about it was a continental championship in Africa. 2017 it was in Brazzaville in Congo and I almost went because I went to a couple of them that year and I was told this by somebody who was there who's no longer with the organisation so I'm going to tell it anyway but what happened was there was a, a Congolese fighter got through to a final I can't remember which weight it was but he was the only home fighter because again they've agreed to host this and they will foot the bill he was the only one who got through to the final now the authorities are there thinking okay well our lad's going to win this fight you know, that's what they're thinking. Unless he gets knocked out, he is going to win this fight for, for reasons already discussed. And then he didn't get the decision. And what happened? And there was a riot. And they they locked all the IBA officials in a room backstage. I think they got their passports because that's just how that had turned out somehow. Uh, and they said, right, you're not going anywhere. None of you are going anywhere. You need to change that result. You need to get back out there. You need to change that result. And so they did it. There was nothing else they could do. Now, that you're, you're laughing, and, and, and I, don't, I don't blame you. I'm not sure I'd have been laughing if I was there. But the, these are that, that's an extreme example. But uh, it, wasn't that, some that, action subsequently taken to like chuck out the head of that federation or something? Yeah, I think so. I think, but that that's, so at least that was so bad. Yeah, something was actually done. That that's how lawless it can it can, and, and that's the right word. That's how lawless it can be because. You know, something like that happens or a bad decision happens and then you know how quickly they move on. It's right, right, next fight in the ring. And the fighter who's been stitched up is left there utterly bewildered. Like they've just been slapped in the face and it's over and it's gone and it's like it never happened. Um, And and also, like Matt was saying, it's so bad when it happens to like a young kid, like you're 18, you're there for that tournament to win that thing. Whereas at least with the Sturm fight, you're... You got paid at the end of it. Yeah, it's going to lead you on to bigger things. There are some silver linings. Yeah. Too, but you're hardened up to things. And also, it was the fact that I knew it was on. It was on Sky Sports. It was on American television. It was on. You know, there was the the world of boxing will, will yeah. have seen this fight. So it they've happened. seen it for themselves. Yeah. I don't have to go to the payphone or go to school when I get back and go. I go. I just get on. Oh no, I got robbed and everything. And, and me thinking, they're thinking, fuck off. Yeah, Do you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Different. And it's a big problem for kind of boxing as a whole because like amateur boxing tournaments are brilliant, but when you have key decisions that are bad for for whatever reason it might be, you just it infuses this whole thing with cynicism, and you start thinking, why bother? Why bother to watch it? So they are worth watching, but it's so important that you know the bad calls are, are ironed out or the bad apples are are removed. Totally, totally, and, and that, you, you, that, that, that it's great you said that because I think pe- people listen to Macklin's take they're they're boxing through and through, and they if they follow the amateurs they'll they'll know how great it is to watch. But yeah, we don't want to be too negative because it is an extraordinary standard. Some of the fights you see are absolutely ridiculous. WSB was just one of my favourite ever things whilst that was going because you know I, I, I do the research for Sky and and you have fighters come through and we had one last week, Sergey. Sergey Michel, eight and five record in WSB, and whenever I whenever I write that kind of record down, I'll always put down in brackets, which in that competition is a very good record yeah. because in pro boxing, people look at that and think, "Oh, eight and five is rubbish." Eight and five for WSB, like yeah. man, that means no, you are a serious fighter. Look, the good, uh, uh, yeah, I just want to add this as well. The good with the amateur thing, look, no, no system is perfect in anything, you know, and the good massively, all the positives in amateur boxing as a fighter being involved watching it in any in any capacity mass the good massively outweighs the bad but we don't want to see the bad ruining the absolutely. good absolutely 
Absolutely. Yeah, cause the, and the people involved in amateur boxing, like the boxers and the coaches, they're all in it for the right reasons. They're trying to do something good. But like, exactly like you say, they deserve, they deserve to get the fair right play. winner at the end of the day. They deserve it ought to be fair. And speaking of the WSB, I was thinking of Sergei Devryanchenko. When he was doing the WSB, he was like the king of it. Brilliant. And then he's had, you know, not very many professional fights at all. Goes in with Golovkin and like gives him hell. And there's a reason because... Um, Obviously, the WSB is hardened. Yeah, we're talking about look at Hergovic. Look at Hergovic, yeah. twenty-five and four in WSB. So he's he's had like thirty pro fights, yeah. really, at a good level. Before, but at a really good level before he turned professional. It's it's uh, God. I wish they'd bring that competition back because it was, although it was difficult to see how it lasted as long as it did because it just it, it couldn't possibly have made any money. It must no. have been costing a fortune. And any season, really, I was thinking this this can't keep going. And then finally, I was sadly I was I was right. I was yeah. right. Well, this is why the IOC was worried about Aiba's finances because they were doing the WSB, and you're wondering where's all the money coming from? How is it making anything? They started doing this thing called APB, which was the most had the most bizarre. Must have had access system. to that same hedge fund Al Heyman had. <laughs> <laughs> A- APB was mental though, wasn't it? I mean, it was kind of, they didn't need to do both. They didn't need to do WSB and APB, but APB wasn't televised in any way. But you, you can just imagine these really competitive, rock-hard fights going on in Tashkent and other places where they put them on. And just no one ever knowing they'd happened or, or, or even seeing them. You've got this phenomenal standard um, literally behind closed doors. Yeah, you because know, I, th- I think they did have like a big investor from China who's probably who knows what he was promised, but he's probably <laughs> turning around wondering like, what's going on here? Where am I getting my return? What, what have what, I done? One suspects he got his fingers burnt. Uh, but anyway, we need to, we, we we can't stick around much longer, unfortunately, which is really annoying because um, we could talk about this literally all day. Uh, but we will definitely do this again, John, and and, and uh, around the qualifiers maybe in March, and and certainly in the build up to the Olympics. But just give us a quick, just give us a quick rundown on the sort of runners and riders for Tokyo um, for, for for GB as to who you would you would expect. To, how many do you think will qualify? Firstly, and who in particular should people look out for? Because as I say, a lot of people listening to this, they might be just steeped pro boxing people, pro boxing followers. They might not necessarily look out for the amateurs as much as as others. I think GB have got a really good squad going into Tokyo. They've got some really, really talented boxers who have actually got lots of years of experience of like high-level international boxing behind them. So I think GB will get, you know, the weights have moved around a bit, so that could change things, but, you know, maybe get 11 qualified. And of the team, I think look out for, you know, the McCormack twins, brilliant welterweight and light welterweight. Chavon Clark is a 91 kilo heavyweight. He's not the tallest for that division, but he's an exciting fight with power. He'll be a good pro. Got Fraser Clark. People might know him as a sparring partner of Joshua, but he's a very experienced international. If he can get to Tokyo, he'll do well. Uh, And Peter McGrail, very skillful boxer from Liverpool at 57 kilos now. Um, So yeah, bet, bet, bet on them. And what about the uh, Irish team, John? Because obviously they've, they've lost Joe Ward to the pro game, Paddy Donovan as well. They were two very good fighters. Um, what's that? Has their team looking good? I think yes. Some of those sort of big talents have moved on because in sort of year, in Olympics gone by, a lot of the top Irish amateurs would stay. But they just they had a disaster at Rio, didn't they? Because they had, they had all those big names still still left there then, and you looked at it and thought, wow, they could get a real haul here, and it just. I mean, yeah. it all just went to shit, didn't it, for, for different reasons. And even Katie Taylor didn't perform at Rio. Like you said, that, yeah. when you look back at the team they had, Katie Taylor, Paddy Barnes, Michael Conlon, Joe Ward, like, you know, they should have got a lot of medals. Yeah. But they still have got good boxers, like Kurt Walker at at 57 now. He's been he's beaten Peter McGrail a couple of times. He's They've got a great rival to, rivalry to watch. They've got some good female boxers. Um, is, is Gabriel Dawson still amateur? I am not a hundred percent sure. I think he might not be. Because I, I think Andy Lee might have said go. to me recently that he that he might have turned over. But but yeah, it's, it is interesting. Bernard Dunn seems to be doing good things there, though. And I think like yeah. you know, GB had big success, obviously bringing in Robert McCracken, you know, an, an experienced boxer that boxed internationally, went on and had a good pro career. I, I think that was a, a big thing. Robert's done so well with them, and then I think um, Bernard Dunn going in on the Irish. I think that's a, that's a Good move they've made. 
Yeah, because the important thing with those kind of in Olympic teams is you've got to have a good system because you know, Ireland and Britain, they're going to be good boxers coming through, but they've got to be in a good system where they get the top coaching, great experience from not just tournaments, but training camps with international teams and adapt themselves to the sort of right style to score points. Um, but I think things like, like Joe Ward, if he had stayed amateur for one more Olympics, he would have been the great hope going into it. But he's had he's been really unlucky sometimes. He's even been unlucky as a pro, so I don't quite yeah, know how totally, that... Totally. Okay, well, we will, we will leave it there. And thanks very much. Thanks very much for your time, John. And your professionalism in the midst of opposition. We've encountered opposition today to Macklin's take. The, the Crown Park players of Gestapo tried to shut us down halfway through, but we wouldn't have it. We moved to a different location. We shall not be silenced. This is a guerrilla pirate broadcast. It is. Like, it is. At any moment, we could be shut down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe may he's a former IEBA executive and, and, he, and he got wind of the fact that we were going to attack thorny issues. And this podcast has been hacked. Yeah, and that's and that's what it is. That's what it is. We can't rule anything out at this stage. I'm not saying he is. I'm not saying that is the case, but, but I'm not saying he's not either. <laughs> so anyway, thanks very much for listening, everybody. Um, as I said at the start. Oh, and just one final thing. I, I did say at the start that John is a published author. He's written a very good book about Anthony Joshua. I've read it. It's a, it's a terrific read. He was with him all the way through the amateurs. He's watched him all the way through the pros. Nobody knows more about his career than him. So if you want to get hold of that, if you want to know a bit more about the main man, then that is absolutely where you should go. Uh, take care, everybody. If you can get onto iTunes and give us a rate and a subscribe before next time, that'll be, that'll be cracking. And we'll be with you again soon. Get someone sneaking round a corner Could that someone be Mac the knife? There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just Sports Social Podcast Network.